You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 20th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, what role does China want to play in ending Russia's war in Ukraine? We look at the changing relationship between Moscow and Beijing. Also ahead, the Taliban wants to turn former military bases into special business zones. Could this help Afghanistan's embattled economy? Then our series on Ukraine starts with an episode dedicated to the memories of the country before the war. I think it's definitely the the most beautiful place, you know, if you really bring somebody to Kiev and want to show it. All that ahead and there is still time to look at the latest newspaper stories with Fernando Augusto Pacheco too. Fernando, what do you have for us today? Hello Marcus, Carnival is off to a difficult start in Brazil with record rainfall in the state of Sao Paulo bringing destruction. More from Fernando a bit later. That is all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. The US has warned China may be considering offering weapons to Russia for the war in Ukraine. Speaking at the Munich Security Conference, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Washington was concerned Beijing was considering offering support to Moscow. Such an escalation would mean serious consequences to China, he warned. Meanwhile, China has said it has come up with its own peace proposal for the war and that it will be unveiled later this week. I'm joined with more by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue. Welcome to the program, Isabel. What do you think is happening over here? Do you think China would actually take the step to provide Moscow with weapons for the Ukraine war? I think that is slightly unlikely, to be honest, because China wants to be seen as the um, as the neutral broker in this situation, and to be. Fair, that's already a, a, a position which is in some doubt because of all the tacit support and the close relationship it has with Moscow. Actually, to supply weapons, I think, would be would expose China to the kind of embarrassment we've seen over being discovered with a with a spy balloon, and it doesn't really help China's position, uh, or at least the position that it's trying to promote. That said, China, you know, Chinese materiel is getting to the front line, particularly in the form of what can be described as as civilian drones which obviously have have military uses if you're if you're looking at you know taking a close look at the battlefield and those continue to arrive in Russia some of them via third parties some via Iran some via uh, Shenzhen Hong Kong and you can see on on Chinese customs data they continue to be exported they continue to be used by the Russians looking at Ukrainian positions for example and that is that sort of gray area of civil military fusion that China you know has has embraced looking at this grey area. Tell us more about how Beijing has viewed the conflict. At some point it seemed that the country wants to stay away from this conflict, but has that actually happened? Well, I'm not sure that when when this conflict was you know was started that China anticipated that it would last a year and, and have such extreme global um 
consequences. And I think that's unwelcome. On the other hand, there are some upsides for China. It means that the United States and NATO are preoccupied with Europe and not with the Far East. China is getting cheap oil and gas from Russia. And it has changed the balance of the relationship between China and Russia very much in China's favor. Russia is now dependent on China for diplomatic cover, for help in getting out of this mess with some uh, some dignity if they can. And, and, you know, that's a very different relationship from the one that Russia and China used to have. So looking at these warnings from Washington that China would be offering military help to Russia, you don't think that is likely. But where do you think those concerns come from? What do you think Washington is thinking and what have they seen? Well, it does seem to be intelligence. And I have to say that US intelligence in the whole Ukraine uh, situation has been has turned out to be pretty accurate. I mean, they were calling the invasion uh, several you know, a couple of weeks before it happened, um, they're not going to reveal what they've seen now, uh, which makes them suspect that there are conversations of this kind. It might be military to military conversations that, you know, we that are not going to be revealed by either side. That doesn't necessarily mean they result in in a material supply. Uh, if there were to be a material supply, it's worth remembering that China was a major customer for uh, Russian uh, military uh, material, including um, aircraft, including, you know, heavy weapons. Uh, until relatively recently, you know, China was a major customer because Russia had a more advanced defense industry. The balance of that is shifting slightly. But the PLA will have large stocks of material that could be useful for Russia. How whether China would take the decision to to supply it, to share it, how that could be done without it being seen and damaging uh, China's diplomatic position, I think that's really quite difficult. I think that would take a, a rather more extreme situation than we're looking at even now. Now, another interesting development from the weekend. China said it will unveil its own peace proposal soon, later this week. What do you expect? Uh, well, I, I mean, China, China announced its peace proposal as something that would respect UN principles and, you know, territorial integrity and independence. And frankly, you know, the only way that the European and the American side are going to regard that as fulfilled is if Russia withdraws not only from the territory that it's occupied in, in the last year, but everything occupied since 2013. And that just isn't likely to happen. But I think that this is the beginning of a of a an effort by China to be seen as the reasonable peace broker in this situation and to portray NATO and the US as the aggressors and the problem. And that very much fits in with the with the Chinese Russian narrative that, you know, Moscow Moscow says they made me do it and China if you if you look at what Wang Yi has said about the peace proposal, yes, a nod to all those good UN principles, but also that the uh, security concerns of all sides must be respected. And that is code for, uh, you know, Russia's paranoia about NATO and NATO expansion. So it's going to be very, very tricky to see China as an honest broker in this, because the record so far has been that they are very much propping up the Russian position. Is there a risk that this kind of Chinese meddling is only going to complicate things and potentially make the conflict last longer? 
Well, I suppose if there were material um, material supply, that would be true. The other thing that I think the Ukrainian side is concerned about, that if, if this peace proposal is taken seriously and a ceasefire results while it's negotiated, it could just be used by the Russian side, you know, to draw breath and resupply, which would not be helpful at all. There's a serious lack of trust in, in uh, uh, of Moscow for very good reasons. So, I'm not at all sure what sort of guarantees Beijing could offer that would lead the Ukrainian side or indeed, you know, Ukrainian supporters to to trust this process at all. I mean, remember that China had a a security guarantee with Ukraine when Ukraine gave up its um, nuclear weapons. A number of countries offered a security guarantee to Ukraine, including China. So there's already you know, a deep mistrust. China says it's neutral, but it talks to Moscow all the time and won't take calls from Zelensky, no conversations with Ukraine. So China has some moral ground to make up here before this proposal, I think, is going to be given any oxygen at all. Isabel Hilton, thank you very much for joining us today. It's 12.09 here in London. Here is Monaco Scarlett Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. U.S. President Joe Biden has arrived in Kyiv in what is his first visit to Ukraine since Russia invaded almost a year ago. The surprise visit comes as he travelled to neighbouring Poland to meet President Andrzej Duda. The visit comes ahead of the one-year anniversary of the start of the war. Turkey has ended rescue efforts in all but two provinces, almost two weeks after massive earthquakes killed more than 44,000 people. The country's disaster agency said search and rescue efforts were continuing at around 40 buildings in the two provinces. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has announced 100 million U.S. dollars in humanitarian aid. And Japan's top entertainment academy, Okinawa Actors School, is opening up to a fresh crop of aspiring stars for the first time in years. The school is known for producing some of Japan's biggest celebrities, including the singer Naomi Amuro. The school received over 50,000 applications from across Japan when it auditioned new students in 1998. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. The Taliban administration in Afghanistan has announced it will turn some former foreign military bases into special economic zones for businesses. The special business and trade centers would promote economic growth and development in the country that has faced a deepening economic and humanitarian crisis since the Taliban took power in 2021. For more on this, I'm joined by Dr. Sajan Goel, International Security Director at the Asia Pacific Foundation and visiting teacher at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome to the program. Could you first tell us more about what has been announced? Well, the details of these special economic zones are somewhat limited. Uh, They're not very detailed, but what's interesting is that they've been announced by Mullah uh, Barada, who is the current deputy prime minister, and he's in charge of economic affairs. Now, he's the individual that the West assumed would be a more moderate force within the Taliban. He was key to the Doha deal that the United States signed with uh, the Taliban a few years ago. But he has also been somewhat uh, isolated in the Taliban setup following the return of this uh, militia. So it'll be interesting to see what role he actually can have and whether these special economic zones are just an idea, uh, a pipe dream, or whether they actually have any practical uh, elements to it. Do we know yet at all what might happen in practice, what these business zones would actually be like? 
Well, one thing to uh, remember about Afghanistan is that it is estimated to be sitting on natural resources, which includes natural gas, copper, rare earths such as uh, lithium. Uh, and the, it's believed that the resources could amount to up to $1 trillion. So there is a very large amount of untapped natural resources within uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and that is something that the Taliban potentially are keen to exploit. Keep in mind that the country is going through an economic collapse. Uh, you have 90% plus people living below the poverty line. Uh, and it's something that the Taliban need to try and address. But how they go about it is the key question. There are still a lot of uh, problems in that. And it seems that they might have some willing partners in countries like China, who have been very keen to get a foothold inside Afghanistan. But the thing that we keep going back to is the details remain very sketchy. You mentioned China over there, and I was just going to ask how much interest there would be with countries around the world to for them to make business with Afghanistan. Well, earlier this year, the Taliban uh, planned to sign a, a deal with a Chinese firm to drill for oil in northern uh, Afghanistan. And the deal is supposed to comprise for about 25 years, which just underscores how significant China is in terms of its uh, involvement there. We've already seen a significant Chinese uh, investment, infrastructure, and personnel pour into Afghanistan over the last uh, year and a half. China very much wants to make Afghanistan part of its China Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, as well as the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. However, We've seen a lot of attacks also take place on Chinese workers inside Afghanistan by the ISIS affiliate there. And the other thing to remember is that even though the Taliban run Afghanistan, there are so many different factions that control different parts of the country. It's not a single monolithic group. The most powerful entity in Afghanistan is the Haqqani Network, which also happens to be a prescribed terrorist group. And they do not have a very good relationship with Mullah Barada, who is the individual promoting these special economic zones. So we will have to see whether these are just sound bites or whether they actually have any practical uh, implementation in the coming months and years. But do you think do you think it's clear that the Taliban will need to do something to make the country more attractive to 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 make to do business with, considering that it's been going through a deepening economic and humanitarian crisis since the Taliban took power in 2021? Most definitely, the Taliban does need to work out ways to enhance and improve Afghanistan's economy because there have been sanctions imposed on the regime, which in turn impacts directly on the people of the country since their return to power. Pakistan, another important entity in all of this, uh, has also been encouraging uh, the Taliban to develop its uh, economic interests. And Pakistan has its own vested uh, interest in Afghanistan because of the fact that the other entity in this uh, very complicated situation is known as the Pakistan Taliban, the TTP, who have been growing in the ascendancy and been using Afghanistan as a platform to carry out attacks in Pakistan. There's some irony there because Pakistan helped the Afghan Taliban come back to power, but they've not necessarily got uh, the rewards for it. Uh, somewhat the notion of buyer's remorse uh, comes to mind where Pakistan's hope of using uh, the Taliban uh, for its own strategic interests hasn't quite developed the way it perhaps wanted to. So 
if Afghanistan develops further economic problems, security challenges, that has a knock-on effect inside Pakistan too. The, the both countries are very much intertwined. Do you think the Taliban understands the economy and what it takes to fix that situation? Well, the Taliban certainly are very skilled when it comes to clandestine uh, activities involving uh, economic uh, dimensions such as uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, using uh, money laundering purposes as well. These type of dynamics, they're very skilled in shadow businesses uh, effectively. Using actual uh, departments, economic norms, this is something the Taliban actually have no real skill or background in. There's also a massive brain drain that is taking place inside Afghanistan where skilled entrepreneurs, individuals that were at one time key to Afghanistan's bureaucracy, they have left and also, let's not forget one of the most critical components to an economy, that is women. Afghanistan has banned women from working, from being educated. And how can one develop a sustainable economy without women? So the Taliban's misogyny, its connections to terrorism, all of this erodes any potential investor confidence. And it will also hurt uh, the country's chances of even having a semblance of an effective practical working economic system. Sergeant, just finally, do you have any optimism regarding the future of Afghanistan? Do you think the situation would get to the point that the Taliban will have to listen to other countries and make concessions and, for example, look at improving women's rights? One of the mistakes that the West keeps making is thinking that by talking to the Taliban that they can somewhat be moderated. Moderation and the Taliban that is an oxymoron. The Taliban very much are a rigid, dogmatic group. For them, they do not mind if they are isolated by the world. They continue to adopt this very dystopian, Orwellian system, which they feel they ultimately benefit from because it gives them a systematic control. So for countries like Pakistan to, to, to tell the West that they need to engage more with the Taliban, that's actually not really practical nor is it going to be beneficial because for the Taliban, they don't mind having a dialogue with the West, but they will not change. And it's important that we understand that the Taliban ideology precludes and prevents them from actually moderating, of actually trying to become a positive entity in Afghanistan. And until they actually allow women to have greater rights and equal rights, I should say, uh, I don't think that we can see any real positive progress in the country, I'm afraid. Sajjan Goel there, thank you very much for joining us today. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. All this week we are running a special series on Monocle 24 looking at Ukraine and how the conflict has disrupted lives, society and the country ahead of the one-year anniversary this Friday. Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, places like Kiev, Butcher and Kherson were not known for missile strikes or trench warfare, but as lively cities and stunning holiday spots. For the first episode in this series, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to three Ukrainians about some of their fondest memories of their country from before the conflict. Alona Livko begins this report speaking about childhood summers spent harvesting watermelons in Kherson. (laughs) 
we had a whole watermelon farm and, and that was quite common enterprise for some Ukrainians back in the day um, when you were trying to make an extra income. My name is Alona Halivko. I am a political consultant currently based at Atticus Partners in London, formerly an MP in Ukraine and a participant of Ukrainian politics for over 13 years. So my grandmother and grandfather initially started that farm. They bought it off of someone else. And ever since then, every summer has become a trip for us to work on the farm, essentially, but also have some days off and travel to the beach because it was further down from the Black Sea and enjoy our summers in the sun. And the watermelons have really become quite symbolic for Ukraine. And I think that symbol has surpassed the borders after the liberation of Kherson, when you could have seen that Ukrainian authorities were referring to watermelons so much and the media was putting that up as a logo everywhere. So the quickest, most efficient way to get your whole family, which would be, you know, my mom, dad, my brother, and then my grandparents was to all pack into two cars and go on this little road trip. Sometimes, actually, because we're based in southwest of Ukraine near the Carpathian Mountains, there were two routes to take. Um, if we were going via Odessa, for example, we would go through Moldova, and back then we could travel without any border restrictions, essentially. Or you had to go all the way around through all the regions in Ukraine, and that could take up to 24 hours, if not more than that. Sometimes we would stop on the way, camp out just in some forests and woods and really explore Ukraine. And those trips were quite significant because I think, you know, those are the memories that you really carry on for the rest of your life. Some interactions uh, with your family, trying to keep the two kids entertained um, on such a long trip is, of course, a tricky one. But that's when we learned all of our games that had anything to do with languages. We would sing our songs. Uh, that's where I learned most of Ukrainian folk songs. Just my grandmother and, and my mom trying to occupy us. My name is Natalia Humenyuk. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. I, I'm based and I live in Kiev. Kiev is probably today one of the most vibrant cities in Central Europe. There are around 4 million people who live in Kiev. It's generally, when you really try to describe it, the first things which are coming to your mind is saying like how green it is because there is a huge river separating the Kiev for two banks and there are incredible amount of the parks and trees and churches. Especially within the last year, especially after the Euromaidan revolution, I think it became very, you know, very hype city. You know, it has probably one of the most known techno discos in the country. There was, you know, uh, quite a extraordinary restaurant business going on. The area near St. Sophia Cathedral and Hailevsky Cathedral, it's like the oldest part of the city. Uh, where there are a couple of churches, but also it's quite a hipsterish neighborhood. It became like that, but also historic. It's a bit on the hill over the over the river. I think it's definitely the, the most beautiful place. You know, if you really bring somebody to Kiev and want to show it, I think due to numerous reasons, uh, we Ukrainians 
like, have a bit of the habit of complain all the time and dislike things and find the, the troubles, small problems in everything. But I think uh, what I heard from many people, including from myself, that's how I feel. We all started to, you know, like appreciate it more. I think like everybody think like, you know, like I maybe didn't like it enough. I, I didn't see how pretty it is. I, I didn't didn't understand how precious every building is, uh, every street or so. My name is Olga Tokariuk and I'm a Ukrainian journalist and I'm currently based in Oxford in the UK. I used to live in Kyiv for 20 years and that's the city where my daughter was born. Her name is Lubava and she's seven years old. And one of our favorite spots to go on the weekend was a park in Bucha, in a little town close to Kyiv, Kyiv suburb, very easy to reach, very green, very fast developing. So we would go there on the weekends and stroll in the parks and enjoy the scenery and enjoy also the proximity of a, of a river, of water. She would play on the playgrounds and we would just people watch and admire how quickly this tiny little town was developing and so many Kyiv residents actually started to move there in the last years because the quality of life there was much better than in the capital. It was greener, it was smaller, it was very easy to reach. So then, of course, seeing what Russians have done to Bucha during the invasion and all the atrocities that were committed there, and people killed and houses burned, that, of course, you know, was very shocking and striking because that's not how I remembered the town and knowing that now it is different was so shocking. But then I know that it is rebuilding. It is rebuilding very fast, and I really hope that we will be able to return to Bucha with my family and with my daughter and enjoy the beauty of this town again. Although, of course, there will be scars. And I think in the park that we used to visit, there will be a memorial to all the civilians who were killed in this town. And join us tomorrow at the same time for part two of our series on the conflict in Ukraine. You are with The Briefing. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge Programme brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally, in the programme, it's time to look at what's making the headlines in some of the papers in Brazil. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco joins me in the studio now. Fernando, welcome to the programme. It's the carnival season in your home country and, and, and a bit of a sad tone to start with. There's been some record rainfall and as a result of that, we've seen death and destruction. Tell us more. Absolutely. It's a shame. I was going to do a carnival special, but we have to mention this. Uh, at Folha de São Paulo, a record rainfall in the north coast of the state of Sao Paulo. Uh, and it's quite sad because, you know, it's a place very close to my heart. I used to go there as a kid. It's a very popular destination to go during carnival or during holidays as well. It's a beautiful part of the world as well. So in the city of São Sebastião, there's incredible beaches there. But basically 36 people so far have died because of the record rainfall. And Marcos, I have to say, I've been there many times. It does rain quite a lot, you know, very tropical uh, region, you know, weather-wise, I think that's kind of normal. But this has been unprecedented. I think what rained in just a few hours, it's been more than what used to rain in just one month. Uh, so clearly, it was something that wasn't normal and wasn't expected by people as well. And, and I have a feeling that this death toll will probably increase in the next days as well. Let's continue then with some other papers looking at the actual positive effects of, of the carnival. Veja Weekly magazine is, is looking at numbers and how important this event is for the country. Yeah, when I tell people uh, about carnival in Brazil, I mean, I mean it. It's big business in the country. It's not just about the reverence or the cultural aspects. So Adveja was reading that it's worth, for the Brazilian economy alone, 1.5 billion euros. I mean, we're talking huge numbers here. And the number of street blocks, which are carnival blocks, where people go on a parade, there's more than 5,000 of them. And according to Veja magazine as well, uh, 46 million Brazilians will be in the streets. So we're talking here about massive numbers, not just one uh, little parade in Rio or in Salvador. It's something that the whole country kind of unites uh, together. And, and, and yeah, big numbers. And the tourism is back in the country as well. Fernando, you being from Brazil, do you ever feel like you're missing out when you are not there? Do you try to compensate at home by wearing, I don't know, something glittery? <laughs> well, you know what? I do feel I'm missing out. So I, do, I'm, I was talking to my parents they are celebrating, although they are very worried, as I said, about the rainfall as well. But there is something, I see this beautiful imagery, you know, the music. There is a feeling, I've never been like the biggest carnival person, because I'm usually, you know, quiet and, and you know... Reading uh, newspapers. Reading newspapers, but I used to love to watch on TV as well. I mean, there, there's a big uh, special TV shows on the Samba parades. So yeah, there's something about me that feels a lot of saudades uh, from Brazil. Let, let's talk about what kind of photos have made it to the front pages of Brazilian newspapers today? For example, O Globo has obviously news about this this devastating rain we've seen on the coast of the state of Sao Paulo, but you also have some other photos of the Samba parades. Yeah, that's been a different uh, cover, and, and again, I mean, the, the editor's choice, right? But the main story there was the pictures from the, from the parade yesterday, which is very relevant for Rio, so I completely understand why they do that. But then when something happens, like what happened in Sao Paulo, what do you do? I mean, it's still there, it's the second biggest story, there's a lot of kind of report on that, but there is kind of this divide, because 
carnival is serious news in Brazil. So it, it, it is on the cover front of the front page every time. It is on the news if you watch it. And sometimes, you know, it's a bit more frivolous. I mean, what people are wearing, you know, and, and, and I've been reading, Marcos, it's an inter- it's kind of international. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II was a, one of the biggest costumes so far this year. And in Brazil, apparently we call her Betinha or Little Betty. I mean, we're not... Little Betty. No, Betty. Betty. Yeah, Betty, sorry. Uh, We're not so much for tradition there in Brazil, but yeah, it's it's our our little tribute uh, to the late Queen as well. And and someone, have you seen The White Lotus, Marcus? I have. With Jennifer Coolidge, you know, when she says, these gays, they're trying to murder me. So yeah, some of the gays there were dressed up as Jennifer Coolidge's character, uh, Tanya. So yeah, it's Brazilian carnival going worldwide as well. Well, Fernando, tell me about how the carnival has changed over the years. Obviously, we have been talking about this huge event quite a few times on Monaco 24 over the years. You see different leaders in Brazil. Do politics, are they reflected in the carnival and what people wear? Yeah, politics, not only in the traditional sense, but sexual politics as well. It's changing the mores of the country. So another big story there, uh, we have a character called Globeleza, which used to be a, a woman just dressed in glitter, literally no clothes on television. But that was in the 90s and the noughties. And that was considered accepted. Uh, but then, of course, we're changing. We're having more discussions about objecti- objectification of women. Mm-hmm. And, and apparently this character is going to be retired. I mean, it is a little bit controversial. Some people will miss it. Uh, but then I think Globo said, they didn't say anything official, but they said, well, we're celebrating other types of carnival as well. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion. It might go back, but at the moment, I think there is a sense that perhaps like a naked woman just wearing glitter, it might not be appropriate for television. And it doesn't come from the right wing. It might, might, this actually comes more from the left wing as mm-hmm. well. So a lot of discussions, Marcus, about this, and I find it quite interesting. What is your take on this big question, Fernando? How many... How much clothes should you be wearing when you attend a carnival event, a parade? I'm, I'm more on the liberal sense of the word. I think, you know, I don't mind seeing people naked, but I do agree about the objectification of women. So I think we should have men and women naked, everyone kind of naked in a beautiful way with glitter. So that's that's my view. I, I do understand some of the points, but, you know... It's still carnival. Let's have some fun. Make it beautiful with glitter. Wise words from Fernando <laughs> Augusto Pacheco. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carla Torribello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. And our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday London time. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>